Well, hey everyone, for the last two years, we have been in a series for the teaching portion of our church called The Story of All Stories. You know, when we set out to start this series, the goal was to tell the story of God across all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. And this meant looking at the kind of 30,000 foot view of Scripture without really digging in deep into every single story in the Bible. You know, but the goal wasn't just to see the story of God in Scripture. That is what it was in part. But the reason we wanted to see His story in Scripture was so that we could better understand His story in us as well. Because we believe that God's story, it didn't end at the book of Revelation. You know, for thousands of years, He has continued to write page after page of His story through humanity. And one of the things that we have seen at nearly every turn of God's story is the place of Jesus at the center of all of it, of everything. You know, so over the next two weeks, we are going to wrap up this series. You know, when we started this series, we didn't know what COVID even was. We were meeting at the Northgate Community Center. Life was very different, I would say. I think one of the things that I have honestly loved about this series was the way that it helped honestly make sense of everything that we have experienced over the last two years together. You know, when we looked at the stories like Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther on the exile of God's people, the last, you know, two years was an exile of sorts for us, not from, from God's presence necessarily, but from the malaise of what always was. Meaning the last two years was a shaking of the earth that caused us to look at God with new eyes. We looked at the return of God's people to a city and life that looked nothing like what they left 70 years prior in the exile. And I think here we are two years into something that caused us to be changed in so many ways. Some good ways and some painful. But life, while it may appear to all look like it's kind of getting back to normal or the way it was or used to be, it has changed and shifted us in countless ways. Some that will take years for us to really identify and understand. You know, we looked at stories like from the minor prophets where God's prophets called out the injustices of nations, inviting them to step into the posture of working for the good of all people, which, which then brings glory and honor to God. And I mean, how timely was that in a season where there was so much racial injustice becoming so prevalent in our nation? It caused us to really step into the place of becoming an anti-racist people and an anti-racist church. You know, we looked at things like Lamentations, a book of the Bible that I hadn't honestly spent a lot of time in at all because for a lot of American Christianity, we have convinced ourselves that there was nothing really for us to lament. But when we all were suddenly thrust into a world of, of isolation and frustration, seeing injustice, watching terrible things take place around us in our world, missing the human connections that we were so used to, lament became a welcomed practice of God that we learned together. We saw churches wrestle and struggle in their first century context in ways that were very different from ours and yet strangely similar. See, the point of discovering the story of God in Scripture is so that we can better make sense of the story of God in all of us. You know, we know there are differences in context and in the lives of the people in the Bible. 
But what we can glean from them is the way they were able to walk with God in the midst of real life, of real challenges, of real pain, of real victories. And so my hope is that you have been able to to see God, to see Jesus, the center of God's story in Scripture, and and at the center of your story and our story as a missio. And so I want to wrap up this series with you over the, the next two weeks. And of course, the the last book of the Bible is also one of the most difficult to understand. Revelation is not a book that you just pick up and read and you go, oh yeah, I totally and completely understand what they are saying in that moment. I mean, beasts and Armageddon, last battles, seals, bulls, trumpets, dragons. I mean, what is this, Lord of the Rings? No, Revelation is one of the more challenging books in certainly the New Testament, but really the entire Bible. You know, in in, in a lot of ways, it mirrors many of the Old Testament prophecy books like Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, and Isaiah. In fact, one of the unbelievable distinguishing marks of Revelation is how it constantly uses Old Testament imagery and symbols and numbers and metaphors throughout the letter to describe what is happening. But one of the strange parts of Revelation is not in the letter itself, but rather in the way that people have used this letter to come up with all sorts of crazy conspiracy theories about the end of times and the the end of the world. Revelation has been used in our modern world to try to discover who the Antichrist is and what the number 666 means in our context and who wears the mark of the beast. It has been misunderstood, abused, and used in all sorts of tragic and unbelievably dangerous ways. And the main reason for this is simply because it takes a lot of work to understand imagery and symbolism from the perspective of the people who wrote, you know, 2,000 years ago, lived 2,000 years ago. But if we don't take the time and energy to do so, it is easy to read a letter like Revelation and begin to make all sorts of nonsensical claims about the things that the letter itself is not trying to make. And so today, I'm, I'm not setting out to dig into every theological nuance or symbol or number in Revelation. I'm setting out to give an overview of Revelation so that we can see the story of Jesus in it. You know, I don't have all the answers for what is happening in this letter. There, there have been many books written on Revelation, more so probably than any other uh, book in the New Testament. And so while I will not be able to explain everything, my goal is to help frame the story so that we have just a little bit better of an understanding of what is taking place in this letter. So before we get too deep into all of that that we're going to be looking at, it's important to note who wrote Revelation and the style that the letter is written in, because this will shape a lot of how we understand what is happening. And so the letter was written by John, and there is some debate about which John that we're talking about. Have you ever been talking with a friend that you haven't seen in a while, and you mentioned that you had just talked with another friend, say that their name is Sarah. And the whole time that you're thinking of one Sarah, this friend that you're talking to is thinking of another Sarah. Right? We sometimes get confused in situations like that when we know people by the same name. And it's the same with John, especially in the New Testament, because there is the Gospel of John, and then there are the letters, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, but it is, it's not 
an uncommon view that this is the same John who wrote Revelation. And he did so in the late first century during the reign of Emperor Domitian, who actually ruled from AD 81 to 96. And so John was sent to the island of Patmos, and it's here where he was writing this letter, which in the very first verse, he says that the revelation, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. In other words, this was a vision that John sees from Jesus, and then he writes it down. He writes about it. And so that's who wrote Revelation. But what is the style of the letter? How was he writing this? Because this is not like a traditional letter, especially the ones that we've looked at in the New Testament. And so the style has three categories that actually help us understand better why it seems so strange. And the first was that this was an apocalyptic letter, which was a typical Jewish style of literature that looked at symbolic visions of the writer that revealed a heavenly perspective on history in light of its final outcomes. And so apocalyptic writing would often use symbols or numbers and metaphors to describe the vision that was seen. And so John also says that this apocalyptic letter was prophetic. Now we've talked about a lot about how prophetic writing did not imply predicting you know, distant futures. In other words, this is not a letter that is meant to give some kind of secret code to use us for, for us modern readers to use to determine the timing and the circumstances about the end of the world. Prophecy in the Old Testament that meant that it was God's spoken word done through a prophet to his people to either encourage them or convict them to better living in a time of crisis. And so if we left the categories there at Apocalypse and Prophecy, then it would be easy to see how people would use Revelation to claim that they know the time and circumstance of the end of the world in modern times. Because that kind of apocalyptic prophetic style does lend itself to feeling like you are cracking some kind of code, uncovering some secrets of the future. But the letter is not just an apocalyptic prophecy. It was also written to specific people and churches that John knew. Meaning it was an epistle or a letter to a specific church like Galatians was or Philippians, Ephesians, and others. And so Revelation was specifically written to the seven churches of Asia, which are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Many of those churches we have actually heard about in other letters in the New Testament. Now, why is that a significant point to talk about that well, if the letter is written to specific people in that day and time, it means that the content of the letter can't be separated from real people's lives and stories in that time. It also means that we have to anchor the meaning for us in John's meaning for the Jews at that time. Just like every letter that we've looked at, we have, we have to do the hard work of understanding their context and how they saw and understood these things. And then we use that as the foundation for understanding it for ourselves. All right, so what do I mean? Take things like the numbers in Revelation. Numbers will show up all over this letter. Seven is a particularly important number that would have meant completeness or wholeness and would have been drawn directly from the Old Testament, from things that the Jews knew quite well. 
It's the same with all the metaphors and symbols. John uses Old Testament imagery, symbols, and more to tell the story of this vision from Jesus. And he is not saying things that the Jews wouldn't have been familiar with. You know, just because it can be confusing to us to read about things like a slaughtered lamb opening an unopenable scroll with seven seals that reveals the story of Jesus' work in the world and other things like this, doesn't mean that they would have found it confusing, that the Jews would have found it confusing. So when we get to the places that seem really strange, we have to remind ourselves, it's really only strange to us because we are separated by 2,000 years of history and culture. But what it would have made sense to them. So let's try to understand what they understood so it can then make sense to us as well. So let's dig into this letter for a little bit. There is no way that we are going to be able to address every single little thing in Revelation. You know, but one of the reasons I wanted to do this letter in two parts is because there is so much happening. And, and I honestly can't do it justice in just one teaching unless you guys want a three hour long teaching on Revelation. So anyways, we mentioned that John is writing to the seven churches of Asia, and each church is experiencing something important that Jesus is addressing. Some of the churches are apathetic, some of them are living immorally, others are facing persecution, and so Jesus will address each church directly. And then in chapter 2, he says that there is going to be this great tribulation, that it'll come when the Christians are going to have to choose between basically compromise or faithfulness. And again, at this time, Emperor Domitian is on the throne of Rome. Obviously, Nero, you guys remember Nero? He had a great persecution of the Jews and Christians decades before this moment. But Domitian was also a great persecutor of the Jews and the Christians. And so apparently there were many who, in order to escape the persecution, were denying Jesus and faith altogether. And so Jesus then tells them to be faithful, and that if they are faithful, there is a reward waiting for them in the new creation, which this new creation is directly connected to the, the end of Revelation, where Jesus is going to describe in greater detail what the uh, new creation is and what that means. And so John is trying to answer this question. He's going to answer, will the Christians be faithful to Jesus or will they turn from him? That's the question. So let's jump to Revelation 4 and 5 and talk about a really important vision that unfolds there. And so there's this vision that begins in, this, in the heavenly throne room with God sitting on the throne and he's surrounded by all living creatures, both spiritual in nature and physical in nature. And they're surrounding the throne, and all day, every day, they are worshiping God. Then in chapter 5, John sees this scroll with writing on both sides of it, sealed with seven unbreakable seals. And the scroll contained the message of the Old Testament prophets, of people like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, about how God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. But there is a problem because no one can open the scroll. It's unopenable. And so John is weeping over this because the opening of the scroll would usher in God's kingdom on earth, but no one can open it. And so the elders that are surrounding God in that moment, they then declare, look, do not weep. 
For the Lion of Judah, the, the Root of David, is able to open the scroll. And this would have been understood by John and others reading to be a direct reference to the militaristic strength of the king. Remember, all throughout Jewish history was this thought that the Messiah would come on a horse with sword and conquer through strength and war the kingdoms of the earth. And so John hears this and immediately he recalls that narrative that would have been strung throughout Israelite history. And that's what he hears, but he turns and he sees something vastly different from a militaristic Messiah warrior. Instead, what he sees is a slaughtered lamb, alive, standing on the scroll, ready to open it. And this is really important. This image of Jesus as the slaughtered lamb alive is very important in Revelation. And it's going to surface many more times as we go throughout this letter. It showed that the future kingdom of God was ushered in not by military conquest, but through the sacrificed lamb, through the crucified Messiah who died for his enemies, who gave his life for all creation. See, this is a complete flip from the expectation of the Messiah. And so this vision in chapters 4 and 5 then ends with all the creatures and elders worshiping and praising the Lamb as the one who would usher in God's kingdom and lead it to its divine conclusion. So the conclusion of this vision in chapter 5 sets off a series of three sets of sevens. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And I know this is getting kind of thick and perhaps challenging to follow, but just stick with me, all right? Remember, we, we mentioned how people have tried to use Revelation to determine future events like the end of the world today. And depending on who you read or listen to, some people will say that these three sets of seven refer to events that are either in the past or things that are happening right now or things that have yet to happen. It honestly all gets a little bit confusing. I tend to believe that each of these sets of seven are depicting the same period of time between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming, just from three different perspectives or angles. And so this first set of seven are the seven seals. And these are the same seals that were on the scroll that the Lamb was able to open. And so the first four seals are opened and they reveal the, the horsemen. The four horsemen, which portray war and conquest and famine and death. And then the fifth seal is open, revealing the martyred Christians who plead with God, saying, How long, O Lord? To which God answers, Look, just wait a little bit longer. And then the sixth seal is open, and there's this massive earthquake that shakes the earth, while other kind of strange things are happening at the same time. And it all depicts this day of the Lord, which was prophesied about in Isaiah that we actually discussed probably a year ago when we looked at Isaiah. And so everyone is in this earthquake and they begin to hide and people are crying out, who is able to withstand this, this day of the Lord? And so before the seventh seal is opened, the, the, the answer to the question of the people begins to be answered in chapter 7. And so John sees four angels standing at the four ends of the earth, and they, these angels are given permission to harm the earth. And this fifth angel appears wearing a ring with the seal of God. And this fifth angel tells these other angels not to harm the earth until he puts the seal on the foreheads of God's people. 
John then hears that the number of these marked people for God is 144,000 which is exactly 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so John hears this number. He hears 144,000. But again, when he turns around, he sees something entirely different. See, the number 144,000 would have been understood to be a military term for counting the army of God, like what happened in the book of Numbers. That's where this is coming from. But instead, John turns around, and again, John sees this slaughtered lamb, the same lamb who opened the scroll, slaughtered but alive, again, shifting the expectation of salvation from this military conquest back to the truth of victory through the sacrificed lamb, or Jesus, right? And along with the lamb, John sees this great multitude, too great to count, Now, I want to address something here that is strange because there are some parts of Christianity that try to turn the number 144,000 into some kind of secret knowledge about how many people God will actually save, which is honestly just completely insane to me. There was a study done by the Population Reference Bureau, which is a real thing, that estimated that 117 billion people have lived on planet Earth in its history. Obviously, Obviously, that's an estimate because there is Really no way to know for sure since records for thousands of years are either non-existent or sketchy at best. But think of this idea of God only saving 144,000. If that were actually true, if we limit God to saving 144,000, then you and I are likely not making the cut. But the point isn't to show how many people are saved, but rather to show the difference between salvation through, through military strength and salvation through sacrifice. And so because of the sacrifice of the lamb, the number of people that John sees is so vast. It is too large to count. Is it millions? Is it billions? Is it more? I don't know. I would say it's more. To to me, it shows that there is not a cap on what God is doing to reach people in the world. And so we shouldn't put a cap on it either. But not only is the number striking, what else is striking is that the crowd is made up of every tribe, every tongue, every language of the world throughout history. Standing before God because of the Lamb. I mean, what a beautiful picture into the nature of Jesus' work in humanity. See, he doesn't seek to be near one demographic over another. He seeks to be near the entire population of the earth. And this great multitude is given the power to conquer evil and death, not through killing or through militant power and strength, but through the suffering, service, and sacrifice of the Lamb. And so this leads to the seventh seal being opened, and John sees in this seal seven angels being handed seven trumpets, which retell a lot of the story of the seven seals, but from a different perspective. And so the first seven trumpets are blown, and they represent the plagues on earth from the Exodus story. And then the sixth trumpet is blown, and the four horsemen once again make an appearance, except this time, like Pharaoh did during the time of the plagues, The people who hear this do not repent as the trumpets are blown. But again, before the seventh trumpet is blown, there is this strange detour where an angel comes down holding the unsealed scroll that was opened by the Lamb. And then Jesus tells John to then eat the scroll, which he does. And Jesus tells him that he will have to prophesy once again. And so there are these two prophecies that unfold. First, 
John is told to measure the temple and its worshipers, but not to measure the temple courts. And so measuring like this was a depiction of protection. And so you can look at Zechariah 2. The people measure the city to, uh, the, measure the city in order to build the wall of protection. But again, in this vision, this prophecy, the people in the prophecy on the outer courts get trampled on by the nations. And so some people have said that this first prophecy is talking about a past or future destruction of Jerusalem. However, I think it's more likely referencing the idea of the new temple that, that Revelation will talk more about in Revelation chapter 21, which is also talked about many times throughout the New Testament letters. And the New Testament in the New Testament was always a symbol of God's people. So this vision was more likely portraying how Jesus' people may experience persecution, but that this external defeat could not take away their victory through the Lamb. And so that's what this first prophecy is. And then there's a second thing that happens. There are these two witnesses that show up to prophesy, and they are called the two lampstands, which the lampstands is a reference that John used in the first couple of chapters of Revelation to describe the seven churches of Asia, which to me means that these two witnesses or these two lampstands actually depict the churches prophetic role to call back leaders of nations and the nations themselves to the purposes of God. And so after these two witnesses show up and they call the nations back to God, there is this terrible beast that emerges and kills the two witnesses, but then God resurrects them back to life and eventually the people do begin to praise and give glory to God. You know, I think at this point, it's important to note that none of the judgment of God from the seven seals or the seven trumpets caused the people to repent or to turn back to God on their own. The repentance of the people came from the Lamb's loving act of sacrifice on behalf of the people that then causes them to turn to God. So in reality, the scroll reveals the mission of the church to, to imitate the loving sacrifice of the Lamb, to believe honestly that it's God's mercy that will lead people to repentance. And then so finally, there is this seventh trumpet that sounds, and the kingdoms of the earth are shaken as God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. Whew, okay. This is the first 11 chapters of Revelation. Now again, my goal in this is not to do a deep dive into the depth of the theology of Revelation, but to help lay the narrative of this letter out in a way that you can kind of follow, hopefully, <laughs> and then to provide some insights as to what is happening and why. But there is so much more in this letter, more than we are able to get to today or even next week, and so I want to encourage you to do some research on your own. Or if you would like, send me some of your questions and I will try to give some insight into them. But what have we looked at so far? I think so far in this letter, the thing that really sticks out to me is this image of the slaughtered but alive lamb. You know, every time John hears something and has the expectation to see things from the perspective of the Old Testament Jewish understanding of the Messiah, he then turns and what he sees is the complete opposite. He sees this slaughtered but alive lamb, which is obviously portraying the sacrificed but resurrected Jesus. And I just wonder how often we have had these images of who Jesus is and how he would unfold his mission in the world that are maybe not true. 
See, some people see him as this masculine warrior set to defeat all the enemies by the sword. But isn't it the truth, as we have seen over the last two years, that he comes with gentleness and compassion, love and humility, and he conquers through sacrifice, not force or coercion or abuse. Perhaps one of the most important things we can learn so far from Revelation is that just like they got Jesus wrong in the Old Testament, so do we at times. You know, Jesus himself says that he came to seek and save the lost. He says that he was anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, Revelation is trying to get the people to understand that that Jesus is at the center of all things. That Jesus lived out this loving, sacrificial posture towards all, all people. And when Jesus becomes our center, we don't have to ask questions of if we should engage in the lives or stories of others in all their hurts and all their pains and their messiness or whatever. It's a question of what does it say about our hearts if we don't? those things. John's point in Revelation isn't to scare you or to cause you to seek the secret code revealing the end times. It's to tell the story of Jesus in a way that no matter where you are, no matter your circumstance, your suffering, your persecution, the challenges, the pain that you feel, that the reality of Jesus as the gentle, self-sacrificed lamb on your behalf would cause your heart to swell and long to be near him and to treat the world as he treated them. So, okay, that's only the first half. Next week, we will wrap up Revelation, the last 11 chapters, and then we're going to wrap up the entire story of all stories through the Bible. So thank you guys for listening to this. I know Revelation can be a little bit confusing. So if there are any points that you want to uh, have more information on, I would love to share those things with you. It is a confusing book, but it's one that is really powerful when when we begin to understand it. All right. Love you guys. Have a wonderful day.